May I speak in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. From our New Testament reading this morning, by St. Paul. For I handed on to you, as of first importance, what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. There's a very, very strange, um, very self-consciously Roman Catholic author of the last century called Frederick Rolf, who styled himself rather fabulously Baron Corvo, no more a baron than I am. His stories are are sort of fascinating mix of high drama, camp, and theology – And one of his stories is called The Last Pope. And he imagines that Christianity has collapsed. There is only one baptized person left. And so he has to be Pope. And um, the the story tells of his final Eucharist, which he celebrates by himself because there's no one else. And as he receives communion, he dies. And that's the moment at which Christ returns and the heaven and earth are then rolled up. It's quite extraordinarily over the top. But he raises, I think, a perennial anxiety for Christians during times of change. What if we are the last generation of Christians? St. Paul handed over the faith he received to the next generation. What if we are the first generation that cannot do that? And our faith, apparently at least, dies. Certainly, the church is going through extraordinary change, and a lot of that change is loss. You may have heard in our diocese, we're having to consider closing quite a large number of parish churches, refiguring the whole of the diocese into different structures, and it's very likely that um, we'll be losing a third of the paid clergy over the next five years. That is what the diocese is planning for because of the resources which we have. This can feel like a constant story of loss, not made easier by talking about the loss and the change as even worse than it is. There's a certain amount of doom-mongering that we must challenge. And by the way, our story is much more complex than one of growth until the 1970s and then gradual contraction. There are far, far, far more communicant Anglicans in Sheffield now than there were at the beginning of the 19th century when there were about 38. That's in the whole of the then town of Sheffield which at that time was about 300,000. So actually, the story is more encouraging than we might think of the past. 
But it feels as if the church is going into a period of exile, exile in the place we have always lived. The exile is part of the story of the people of God in the Old Testament, when following the crushing defeat uh, that Judah had, the entire leadership of the nation, in particular its religious leadership, was led into exile in Babylon and forced to live there as sort of um, polite captives for a generation. They lost almost all copies of the scriptures. All places of worship in the land were pulled down and turned into something else. They lost the continuity of leadership. It felt to people as if their very identity had been lost. Is that how it will be for the church in the next 50 years? What the people of God learnt in that exile is that despite their loss, God is faithful to them. And God called them back out of exile, back to their land. And with God's help, they were able to rebuild, stronger perhaps than before, their faith. I believe that our gospel reading today gives us very important insight into how the church is now called to be in this time of loss and possible exile. Jesus quotes the prophet Jeremiah as he speaks to Peter, um, or rather paraphrases him. The prophet Jeremiah spoke largely at the time of exile and loss. And he records a prophecy from the Lord. I will bring them back to their own land, the land which I gave to their ancestors. I am now sending for many fishermen, and they shall catch them. Jesus picks up this promise that God will send fishermen to gather together God's people. Christ takes this promise and uses it as part of the call to Peter. Peter, as a good observant Jew, as we believe he was, might well have caught this reference to Jeremiah, um, especially, of course, as being a fisherman. Jesus was inaugurating a new beginning for God's people in which all of God's people throughout the world would be called out of exile into their promised land with Christ. Now, also for an informed reader of the Hebrew Bible, the sea 
is the place of chaos. It's a place inhabited by sea monsters like Leviathan. It's a place of fear and confusion and bewilderment and threat. Um, The Jewish people were never comfortable sailors, as you can gather. And so in the sort of resonance of the scriptures, Jesus speaks to someone lost in chaos and calls them forward and calls them forward in a way that invites them to be part of the future of God's people, the ingathering. So what might we learn from this passage? I'm very struck by the commandment of our Saviour to the, those who would become apostles, pull out into the deep water. Or, resonantly from the Scriptures, pull out without fear into the midst of the place of chaos, loss and confusion. Jesus is inviting the apostles to seek the depths because that is where their work is most fruitful. What would it mean for the church to pull out into the depths? I think that at this time, God is inviting us to three things. To pull into the depths means that we are called to live our faith our faith, in depth, with commitment, with imagination. We simply mustn't paddle about in the shallows. What communicates the Christian faith most fully are lives lived by Christians patterned according to the life of our Saviour. People who see Christians serving others and changing our society to make it more a place of peace and justice, that is the strongest sermon in our culture. Think of the work of the Cathedral Archer Project, Its work in serving those whose lives are lost in confusion and suffering is worth every sermon preached in this cathedral for the last 50 years. It communicates in a way that speaking alone does not. And it communicates to the people of Sheffield what some of the real values of the Christian faith are. If we are called into the depths, we need to take courage and live our faith deeply, courageously and truthfully. Then second... I believe Jesus is calling us to communicate our faith in a way that honours its depth. 
And there's a sense that in order to speak to people who have very little understanding of what the Christian faith is about, there's a sense that you need to dumb things down and make things rather simplistic and easy. Um, certainly we can speak clearly, but if we, if we treat our faith as if you can say everything that needs to be said in a minute, people are going to think it's trivial. They're used to trivial, shallow, mildly interesting media stories. They need depth. Can every Christian learn in a simple way how to communicate the depth of God's love for us, its beauty and strength told in the Christian story? And then thirdly, there's a very strange experience recorded in our Gospel reading. Peter, meeting Christ, says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. You notice that Jesus doesn't forgive his sins. It's not really because Peter is sinful. It's because Peter realises confronted in awe by an action of God, Peter realizes how frail, how limited in understanding, how weak he is, and that's disturbing. This experience of the power of God's presence, which disturbs us and changes us, this is part of our faith's understanding of the ways of God in our soul, the ways of God in our histories. As Anglican Christians, we are heir to an enormously rich wisdom of how God invites us to pray to live ethically, to serve him in depth. Our faith will only live if we are willing to be pulled into that depth and to acknowledge the disturbing, life-changing power of God which goes way beyond our understanding. The, the Anglican bishop and writer William Law described in the 18th century how the Christian faith is communicated to others by a living community. He described a sort of beautiful, ideal parish where people talk together of the Christian faith and so others are invited in. They serve the wider community by providing food for the poor, caring for the sick, making everyone feel part of the community. And because they served others, others trusted them. And then William Law showed this community drawn into depth in their prayer 
living in awe and praise of a God that was beyond their understanding and yet totally gripping. This is how the church has grown in the past. Can we have the confidence to trust in our history or rather to trust in God's invitation to us to pull into the deep? The little boat of this cathedral, I believe, and the little community we are within it, is being called with all the Christians in our diocese to pull into the depth. There's something about the death of popes that seem to fascinate Roman Catholic Christians. Um, We could speculate why that is, but that's not for now. But Graham Greene, another, of course, very self-consciously Roman Catholic writer, also wrote a story about the last pope. Different one. And this last pope is the final Christian left living under a very, very oppressive, I think meant to be communist government. He's brought up from the cells to appear before the communist leader And um, the leader says, you're still a threat while there's one Christian alive. We're going to shoot you. And um, But being a gentleman, he, he offers the Pope a glass of wine and they chat together before the Pope's about to be martyred. It's a very odd story. And then, alas, in the story, the Pope is taken off and shot. But... Graham Greene's story ends differently from Frederick Rolfe. The Pope has been the, the general, the dictator in the story, has been so disturbed, so overwhelmed by the beauty of what the final Pope said that in his mind faith is born. I'm with Graham Greene. Even in times of great loss and apparent apparent confusion, in the depths we will find Christ and we will be able to fulfill what Paul did in his time. For I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Amen.